I wound up accidentally becoming an animator. Every student wanted to be Steven Spielberg and make live action epics. And I realized real quick that I couldn't afford it. And I realized I could shoot my student films on one can of film if I animated it. That's animator extraordinaire Don Hertzfeldt, who learned how to animate on a vintage camera similar to the ones originally used at Walt Disney Studios. This is the plan for a super cartoon camera. And that's Walt Disney, talking about one of his innovative camera designs. We call it the multiplane camera. It was intended for use in our feature-length cartoons. When I graduated, I bought my own 35 millimeter version. It had all these little manual dials everywhere. So you'd put your artwork down and then you'd move a just fraction of a position on your little knob. Take a frame, next piece, move the thing, take a frame. Everything was manual. It's basically eight foot tall, literally 800 pounds of uh, metal. I wrestled this 800 pound machine up a flight of stairs into a studio. It's a miracle that this giant thing didn't just plummet through the floor and kill somebody downstairs. It was above a carpet cleaning studio and an auto body shop. And so during the day, it was humid and it smelled bad. You could not work in there. So I would come in in the middle of the night and when everyone was gone and was quiet, I wouldn't get in trouble if I played music. I went to high school in the 90s, and so R.E.M. was huge uh, for us. Nirvana, of course, and Radiohead, Morrissey, The Cure. We weren't a happy generation. <laughs> so I'd, I'd blast a bunch of CDs and, and it'd shoot and shoot and shoot all night. There was no video playback. You'd shoot your roll of film and you'd send it away to the film lab, and a couple weeks later, you'd see what you shot. So I got this thing in 1999, and it, it sort of snowballed from there. I'm Joe Skinner, and this is American Master's Creative Spark. In each episode, we bring you the story of how one work of art came to exist in the artist's own words. Today's focus, Don Hertzfeld on the making of his first feature film, It's Such a Beautiful Day. To understand the work of Don Hertzfeld, who has been nominated for two Academy Awards, you need to understand his tools. Like Hendrix and his guitar, or Warhol and his silk screens, the 35mm animation camera is an emblem for Hertzfeld, and his 2011 debut feature, It's Such a Beautiful Day, is the pinnacle of his work in the format. But before that, his first major project after graduating college with his new camera was a hilarious short film from 2000 called Rejected. My spoon is too big. My spoon is too big. The nine-minute short film is full of absurd and surreal fake advertisements, a reflection of Hertzfeld's own rejection of offers for that kind of work. I am a banana! It can be hard to visualize an animated film without actually seeing it. Hertzfeldt's style is distinct. His characters are almost always simple stick figures. Unlike the elaborate characters and backgrounds in a Disney movie, Hertzfeldt uses plain black pen against a white background, 
and he writes with a sarcastic edge. The style works, and it resonated with his audience. Rejected was nominated for Best Animated Short Film at the Oscars, and became a hit in early internet culture. In fact, it might have been one of the first videos I ever stumbled upon on YouTube. So, how did his first professional short film land him an Oscar nod? I made it up as it went along. I've run into master animators, top of the craft people, Disney people, beyond Disney people, heroes of the art form who still feel like they're learning. You know, they're still making mistakes and figuring it out. I'm still making mistakes and making things up as I go. You draw and you draw and you draw and you're like, that looks terrible. And you draw and you draw and you draw, that looks terrible. And then every now and then it doesn't look terrible. You just throw yourself into it. One of the beautiful things about animation is you're working alone and you're not going to waste someone else's money learning. You can refine it and get there. Following the success of Rejected, Hertzfeld stepped outside the comfort zone of his signature spare style of storytelling and made his next film called The Meaning of Life, which instead features tons of characters in elaborate settings with complicated lighting setups and special effects. That one took four years. It took four years to make a short film, which is insane. There's no excuse for that. And it is nothing but heavy technical animation. There's very little editing. The sound is, soundtrack is basically like a cacophony of stuff and it's abstract. And it was the least fun I've ever had in production on, on anything. The Meaning of Life is a 12-minute film that traces the evolution of the human race from blob to futuristic space species. Huge in scope compared to Rejected. There's not really any writing, not really any comedy, nothing that I'm good at is going into the making of this movie. And so it wasn't fun. I sort of dragged myself through this as a corpse for four years. And it was a lot like a bird that was trying to be a dog. Like there's a little bird on the ground and he's running around and he's barking and he's wagging his tail. It's not a bad dog. It's a pretty good dog, I guess, but you're a bird. Why are you flying? The meaning of life may have been not very fun for Hertzfeld, but it still went on to premiere at Sundance. Even with some success, the style of the film was outside of his wheelhouse, and he wasn't playing to his strengths. I don't hate it, but I can never make anything like this again. I, I need to get back to basics. I need to get back to being a bird. My strengths don't lie in animation. I love to write. I love to edit. I love to mix sound. I'm not going to kill myself on the animation desk anymore. I have to get more out of less. And so I'm writing this new piece, Everything Will Be Okay. Everything Will Be Okay is a short film that would later become part one of three in Hertzfeld's feature film, It's Such a Beautiful Day. It features lots of writing and narration, 
It's in fact entirely narrated by Don Hertzfeld himself, and unlike the abstract space story of his last film, this new film is humanistic and grounded. It's a simple story told in vignettes about a man named Bill. In the supermarket, Bill was always very careful to select fruit from only the back of the produce piles, as the fruit in the front was at crotch level to the other customers. He was a minimal character, like all of my other characters. I put a hat on him. I don't think I knew why. It's a very simple, stupid writing question, but it's like, okay, why has he got a hat? You know, why? Um, okay, well, maybe he's covering something up. Maybe he's got no hair. Maybe he's got like a scar. And the idea of a medical condition kind of developed out of that. That night, Bill dreamt of a monstrous fish head that fed upon his skull. I've been very interested in neurology for a long time. And the same goes for memory. And I've always been sort of curious and annoyed at how most Hollywood movies address mental illness. You've either got a character who's one of two things. If they're mentally ill, they're either this magical, quirky figure who's a little bit kooky and enriches the lives of everyone around them. And the other thing was the mentally ill person is the axe murderer. I never felt like these were truthful depictions. I'm not an expert in mental illness, but from my limited understanding, the general diagnosis of somebody who's mentally ill is if they are suffering. And I didn't see that in a lot of movies. You don't get the point of view of somebody who's going through something that's scary. Bill was given a new booklet at the clinic discussing potential memory loss in his treatment. Inside was a cartoon character saying, I don't know about you folks, but I could lose my keys eating breakfast. His neighbor, trying to be helpful but failing, cornered Bill in the parking lot to explain how cryogenic scientists could freeze his brain in ice until a point in the future when microscopic robots could repair it. As the film unfolds, Bill's journey is a mix of the mundane and the horrifying. His condition remains a mystery, but we know he's suffering, and keeping his illness undefined was important to Hertzfeld. If we don't know if Bill is just dying, everyone's going to relate to that. We're all dying. Everyone is going to face this at some point. It's universal. He's everybody, I, I hope. As he waited for his next bus, Bill stared at a torn shopping bag that was blowing in the wind on the end of a broken pole and anxiously sucked blood out of a sore in the corner of his mouth. This scene, like most scenes in the film, contained three separate vignetted windows of animation. In one window is a bird flying. In the second, a flag waving in the wind. And in the third is Bill sitting on a bench. The multi-frame approach is seen throughout the film. This new technique is fundamental to the storytelling. I didn't crack that story until I had a breakthrough with the camera. His split-screen breakthrough was born out of limitation. There were next to no camera moves in any of my early films. It's incredibly complicated and difficult, and the last thing I wanted to do when I dragged myself into the camera room after finishing animation was make things more complicated for myself. 
So I'd, I'd work around it by coming up with stories that were very static. And when I got to everything will be okay, that wasn't going to be good enough. And I just remember still the day I was in my apartment and I got the idea to split up the screen. And I raced right to the studio to start experimenting. Hey, all of a sudden I've gotten around this problem of not being able to move the camera. Instead I can divide the frame and move those around. And, and suddenly that was incredibly interesting. It's a really basic trick. Your camera is a box of light. You expose this corner of the frame with this magical light and cover it up, rewind the camera, expose this other corner with another little thing, rewind the camera. And so the whole movie is composites. The whole movie is multiple exposures. And then the writing from there just came crashing out. It became very easy. Downtown, the hot smell of manure blew past him as he walked. Bill soon came upon three dead horses in the road, apparently struck down by a large moving vehicle. Well, he thought, that would explain the smell then. You hear a city, and you see a little window of buildings, and you see a little window of a bird, and you see a little window of action and people. You're giving the idea of a city. To, to me, it became a much more impressionistic movie. It, it, it felt a lot more like a Magic Lantern show. He met his ex-girlfriend during her lunch break, and they took a walk to the park. He noticed that every time he was near her, she sort of moved away with a tight-lipped smile on her face, as though everything were okay. I was having fun again, for lack of a better word. I realized animation was fun again. I, I was back to writing, I was back to sound design, and I was enjoying myself. Everything Will Be Okay is an impressionistic barrage of deadpan black comedy mixed with scenes of sincere drama around Bill's mental decline and possibly impending death. It enraptured audiences and went on to win the 2007 Sundance Film Festival Jury Award in short filmmaking. And although the film ends with Bill's miraculous recovery, it was just the beginning of the saga for Don Hertzfeld. I knew there was more to this story. There was more to write, more to explore. So he went on to write the second chapter in the trilogy, called I Am So Proud of You, in which Bill learns of the tragic inevitability of his mental illness. But in a stunning departure from the first film, I Am So Proud of You opens with the sounds of ocean waves lapping, and we see live-action photography instead of animation. Suddenly, real-life imagery has found its way into Bill's world of line drawings and stick figures. There is a short story I read many, many years ago in school. It was a World War II story about a, a little village in Europe that was invaded by the Nazis and they were rounding everyone up and shooting them. It was a true story written by a survivor and this day was like every other day except suddenly, you know, the Nazis are here and you're told that everyone is going to die and they marched them through the town and across a bridge and they were all gonna get shot in the forest. But the, the way the writer put it was really interesting to me because he's writing about this revelation of I'm gonna die, they're gonna shoot me. He's walking through his town, he's seeing these details in the cobblestones that he's never noticed before. 
and the trees are suddenly like hallucinatory and beautiful and he's never noticed the way the sun hits these leaves as i put it in the movie bill feels like he's been sleepwalking his whole life the black and white live action photography that appears in i am so proud of you foreshadows an awakening in the final chapter to come but here bill hasn't yet been woken up He's very much sleepwalking through life and trying to battle with this existential dread. He had taken a walk to the park, but didn't really know what to do with his day there. At home he makes toast, but changes his mind. He's been having trouble sleeping again and realizes he's lying in the dark with his eyes open. This second film expands Bill's story into his past, present, and future. Beneath the album was a folder of his mother's medical records. Attached to her initial diagnosis was a physician's note that strongly recommended she never have a child. The finished film clocked in at 22 minutes long, and like its predecessor, I Am So Proud of You went on to tour the country and win dozens of awards. I ended up having such a good time making the second one that I just I just wound up using everything. So I made one and two, and, and then I needed to take a break. In some ways, the story of Bill sleepwalking runs parallel to the story of an artist painstakingly dedicated to their craft. You can get lost in the creative process. Filmmaker Don Hertzfeld, many years into making his trilogy, was now having a moment sort of like that in Santa Barbara, California. You find yourself in this situation where you've graduated, you're still in this college town, and you've got this magical camera. I can make anything I want to. There's no creative boundaries. I don't have to answer to a studio. I don't have to raise money. And there's an audience for it, and there's distribution for it. I was in this dream situation as a filmmaker, but this person moves away, this girlfriend moves away, this friend moves away. I found myself literally alone in, in this town making movies. And it was very strange because if you asked me how I was doing at the time, I'd be like, it's great. Everything's great. You know, I'm making this stuff. Like I was never lonely. I was weirdly, really like happy with this. <laughs> I would go weeks without speaking to another person. I'd be animating all day, I'd be shooting, I'd go get some groceries, and I would I would forget the word for thank you. It's weird what a person can accept as normal in, in their life because I, I was getting all of this stuff done and it was creatively really fulfilling and interesting. And I've never had a panic attack before. <laughs> But I feel like this is what would have happened if I had stayed for much longer. Santa Barbara is like one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's, it's flowers, it's sunny, it's the beach, it's a paradise. But the thought of being back there now makes me incredibly sad. So obviously it affected me on some level. Since graduating college, Hertzfeld had been able to string together financial and artistic continuity with the success of his personal filmmaking. For over 10 years, he worked almost entirely alone with near autonomy, but it came at a cost. A lot of times I'll meet an old animator and I, I see the thousand yard stare in their eyes and I'm like, okay, I, I, I get it. You've been through a lot of things all by yourself. 
I spent most of my 20s and my 30s working on stuff that's it's all on the screen. I've been making a lot of movies about memories, actually, and I've been doing a lot of reading about memories. But you, you know, you're not going to make a memory if nothing's changing. I've got these years that are unaccounted for. I've got years where there's no photographs of me. There's no, there's no memory of my existence. Animation is, it is what it is. We're all paying for it in, in years. And maybe it's a little dramatic, but I, I used to describe it as it's like you're etching a novel into a rock with your fingernails. After years of grinding away at the animation desk on passion projects, Hertzfeld needed a way out. And between his major projects, he found that way out with a lucrative one-off deal he struck with Showtime for a five-minute piece called Wisdom Teeth. That movie actually was my ticket out of Santa Barbara. It wasn't any of the good stuff. <laughs> I just needed to do something stupid and not think about Bill's story for a little while. And I made this really gory cartoon about a baby being pulled out of someone's face. And that was the down payment for my house. That got me into Austin. So he packed up his things and made the trek from California to Texas. And he took his 800-pound camera with him. We got the giant camera out of that studio after 12 years. I hauled that camera across the country and we cut a hole in my house in Austin to get it inside. And then I finished It's Such a Beautiful Day. Bill, can you hear me, Bill? Look at me, Bill. Look at me. 140 over 90. Bill, can you hear me? Bill? Bill, can you hear me? It's Such a Beautiful Day marks the third chapter in Hertzfeld's trilogy about Bill and his declining mental health. After sleepwalking in I Am So Proud of You, Bill suddenly begins to take in the world around him with greater intensity. The last thing Bill can remember is speaking to his ex-girlfriend. Bird wings and the smell of black licorice. Remember that World War II story that Hertzfeld recalled as a moment of inspiration for his project? In this final chapter, his character Bill truly has his awakening. Suddenly, the film is filled with full-color, live-action photography. I really connected with that story, the bad news that wakes us up. Something happens that slaps us in the face, and you wake up. It's in those moments that you take stock of everything. And so the color and the live-action was Bill's awakening. On the side of the road, he sees a woman's tennis shoe filled with leaves, and it fills him with inexplicable sadness. He walks down his side street and sees striking colors in the faces of the people around Details him. Details in these beautiful brick walls and weeds that he must have passed every day but never noticed. The air smells different. He's never Brighter noticed. Brighter somehow, and the currents He's under the bridge noticed. look strange and vivid. vivid. And the sun is warming his face, and the world is clumsy and beautiful and new. And it's as though he's been sleepwalking asleep, asleep for God knows how long. All of those frames were all individually printed. And so I'd go into the camera room with not just stacks of drawn animation, but stacks and stacks and stacks of hundreds of five by seven photographs. And then you'd shoot them under the camera like, like anything else, like something drawn. 
a lot of the movie is shot through sheets of plastic or I'd go to a toy store and I'd find like cheap child's snorkeling mask and I'd shoot things through this uh, snorkel mask. There's a couple shots that are shot through broken glass that sort of refracts the image. You can put literally anything under the lens. It was a great feeling to get that experimental spirit in there in, in Bill's revelations and just try things. And it's kind of like Christmas morning or something. When the film comes back from the lab, you have no idea how it's going to look. And sometimes the light just hits things in a way that makes you look like a genius and you did not plan it whatsoever. It's a little miracle. Formally, it's such a beautiful day softens around the edges. Things get blurrier and more layered as Bill's story enters the fantastical, philosophical realms. Towards the final reels of It's Such a Beautiful Day, the old camera, it finally started to really fail. At times, it feels like Bill's story and decline runs parallel to Hertzfeld's degrading film equipment, both of which are now literally falling apart at the seams. The camera motor started to fail again, and when that happens, you can end up shooting a whole roll of film where the shutter stays open. And so you take a frame and the shutter opens and doesn't close again, and you don't know it. And so it's exposing the film and capturing your hands coming in and taking the artwork away and putting something else down in this weird smearing effect. And so a couple rolls of films were totally ruined, but it was like a haphazard effect. It wouldn't always do that. So I was able to salvage some shots. And so there's a lot of flash frames and accidental light leaks. I mean, they looked cool and they, they kind of worked for what was going on, but the camera crawled to the finish line with me. We barely made it together. In one of the film's final scenes, Bill, still a stick figure, now almost certainly near the end of his life, lays down in vividly photographed green grass and looks up at the trees and he declares, it's such a beautiful day. Wait a minute. He's not going to die gonna, The narrator refuses to accept Bill's likely death and the remaining runtime is spent considering an immortal life Bill may lead. He might create stunning works of art, read every book ever written, and he may create memories built upon memories until life runs on an endless loop, a fitting existential end for a project that challenged Don Hertzfeld for the better part of a decade. So I finished the third one as a short. I didn't really think about putting them all together. All three projects, Everything Will Be Okay, I Am So Proud of You, and It's Such a Beautiful Day, were originally intended by Hertzfeld to be standalone short films, until he was convinced down the road to edit them into a single feature film, now titled simply It's Such a Beautiful Day. All of a sudden, it got a lot of attention that it hadn't ever before as shorts. Today, everyone knows it as a feature film. And, you know, there's a Blu-ray out, it's been on Netflix, it's on the Criterion channel now, and that's how people are discovering it. I was completely blind to the potential of it. As the creator, you know, you're just ready to move on. What's next? <laughs> the existential moment at the end of It's Such a Beautiful Day reminds me of the existential loop of nonstop work that Hertzfeld found himself in, especially in his early years. He may have limited resources, but also absolute artistic freedom. And what's the consequence of that? In the early years, I literally couldn't stop because I couldn't pay the rent. If I didn't have a movie to release, 
next year I'd be done. And if this movie I was making didn't make enough money to keep it going, I'd be finished. It was always a, a very tight line to walk. His independent model and do-it-yourself attitude have come to define his work and career. And ultimately, it's something Don Hertzfeld has come to accept. I'm glad that it happened this way. Staying hungry for all those years and having to do it by myself, I think I became a better filmmaker and I think I became grounded. You fail a lot, you learn a lot more, and and you wind up doing it for the right reasons. Thank you to Don Hertzfeld for his interview and for letting us into his creative process and sharing his passion for independent filmmaking. We'll be back in two weeks after the holidays for our next episode as we continue to look into how artists make their work and the creative spark that drives them. American Masters Creative Spark is a production of the WNET Group, media made possible by all of you. The show is produced by me, Joe Skinner. Our executive producer is Michael Cantor. Original music is composed by Hannes Brown. Funding for American Masters Creative Spark was provided by the Anderson Family Charitable Fund and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.